This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is John Lindsay. Today we're digging into the world of self-storage today. John is a very experienced self-storage investor, developer, broker, thought leader, everything around self-storage. He eats, breathes, and sleeps the self-storage world. Today, we're digging into the state of the market from an investor and broker perspective. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the Investor Club link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, once again, our guest is John Lindsay, and we are talking about self-storage. Let's go. John, thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to dig into self-storage, the state of the market today, and so much more. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you're doing in the self-storage space today? Yep. Well, first of all, Taylor, thanks first for us for having me. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here on the show with you. Uh, my name is John Lindsay, co-founder and president of Lindsay Self-Storage Group. My family's been in the storage business since 1969. Uh, my dad was a developer for a number of years. I grew up pouring concrete. And then in about 2012, I said, Dad, I love storage, but I hate pouring concrete. And uh, I started Lindsay Self Storage Group with my brother. And we've done development, brokerage, acquisitions, and management all over US, Europe, and Southeast Asia. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. Today, I'd love to dig into... What you're seeing in the self-storage market today, there are a lot of angles that we can approach that. But I'll start by saying what I'm seeing is that high interest rates have really slowed a lot of things down. New development, value add, making it a lot more difficult. Are you seeing things like that? And what are you, what's your impression of the impact of high interest rates? Yeah, I think these rates have been really tough to digest as a whole. And yes, we've seen the direct impact in our space today. Uh, I think more importantly, it's really hindering the smaller deals from getting done. The, the first time buyers are having a little harder time getting debt, you know, getting SBA loans or those small balance loans, your rates are probably eight, eight and a half plus now. And that makes it really difficult to pencil deals considering we were 400 base points cheaper 18 months ago. Um, you know, a lot of our bigger buyers are shifting away from debt either all together and doing all cash deals, or they're doing... 50-50 leverage, 60-40, you know, just being very conservative. Um, volume is down across the industry tremendously year over year. Um, but I, I try and remind people, like, we're, we're kind of settling back down to where we were pre-COVID. There was this huge explosion of deal volume through COVID, which was great, and I'm very thankful for it. But this year is a little more back to normal. And, and I'm kind of thankful for it in some regards because things were getting a little out of hand there for a bit. There were some absurd deals getting done. And, and, and I hate to say, I think people were getting some loans they shouldn't have for maybe some developments they were doing or some acquisitions they were making and simply just getting a little over their skis. And I, I didn't really understand all the transactions that were occurring. But now I think we're settling back down to our new norm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm thankful for you know, the run that, that did happen through COVID. But again, this year is feeling much more like 2019 and 2018, which I think uh, for those of us who've been in the business for a long time is a much more digestible cycle and year to what we're used to. So how about on the demand side of things? How are you seeing 
occupancies and rental rates change, if at all? Are they up? Are they down? Any change on the tenant side of things? Yep. So that's a great question. And it's really interesting, you know, and I'll start from outside moving in, you know, we're seeing mortgage applications down 90% year over year. So people are just simply not moving as much anymore to begin with. Uh, And the impact that we've seen on that, you know, not only is the, it's not the only driver of demand for storage, but a large one. Um, A lot of markets are stagnating. Their occupancy is not going up. In fact, maybe we're starting to see the first kind of dip. We're seeing rental rates start to come down for the first time in a long time. And a lot of this new supply that was built from cheap debt during COVID is now all spilling into these markets. And when you couple that with lack of migration or people not wanting to spend that extra money, all of a sudden we're we're starting to see the first bit of headache come out of of this COVID window we saw uh, in the storage space. And, you know, for instance, we were looking at a market the other day and it used to be almost a $2 a square foot market and everyone was full. Now it's closer to $1.20 and all these sites are sitting at 35 to 40% in lease up. Um, I think we're going to start to see some really, really big deals kind of run into some headache over the next year. And the problem is have people position themselves to sustain this, this time? Do they have money reserved for eight and 9% floating construction loans? Do they have money set aside for their sites being at 40 or 50% occupancy? And, you know, I haven't seen a defaulted storage deal probably since 2010 or 2011. And I hate to say it, we might see our first one in the next 12 months. And I, I don't think it was people making absurdly poor decisions. I think what we've seen is a lot of people got feasibility studies done during 2020 or 2021 they underwrote it with 4% construction debt. They started in late 21 or 22. Well, now their construction debt's at 8 or 9% and five other people built at the same time. It's just the first time we've really seen a lot of externality, like pressures all coming in at once in this sector. And so I, I think, again, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom about our space, but I say all that I'd like people to be cautious about the decisions they make moving forward. And I would say that across any sector right now, and just make sure that they're making informed and educational decisions about the projects they're either building or buying right now. Makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate your perspective about trying not to be doom and gloom. We don't want to be doom and gloom, but we also don't want to be rose-colored glasses when times are good. We don't want to get ahead of our skis. We just want to stick to the facts and make informed decisions at the time. So on the topic of new supply coming online and folks kind of stopping to move and everything. Self-storage investors, we talk about things like drive radius and local supply nearby. Are you like, what's your opinion on that in the state of the market today? Are we seeing that oversupply in really kind of concentrated areas like primary metros? I mean, how does the fragmentation of the self-storage market kind of impact this supply demand dynamic with all the new supply coming online? Yeah, no, Toad, it's a great question. And I think we are seeing a lot of this oversupply in more of the core, core plus markets. You know, I don't think people are necessarily going out into rural areas and overbuilding in those markets. Now, we did see people maybe overpay in some of those really rural markets with some floating debt that they're kind of running into issues with. But I think it's really more those core, core plus markets where people all try to jump on you know, one metric of, you know, an undersupplied area and five people all built at once trying to do it. And now we're saying, oh shoot, we've, we've built too much. And 
thankfully, a lot of the markets where we're seeing that also are like very hyper growth markets. The, in the Bible Belt, think like Atlanta and Charlotte and Tampa and Nashville and Chattanooga. You know, there's been a lot of product delivered in those markets, but they're also growing really well. So despite the lack of, you know, overall movement across the U.S. and despite the lack of new mortgages and, you know, people growing, but people are still migrating. They're leaving, they're leaving blue states, they're leaving California, they're leaving the Pacific Northwest, they're coming south. So I think it just might be a longer path forward to reach a sustainable level of those properties than what we initially thought. So if people budgeted for a two-year lease up, maybe it's a three to four-year lease up. And it'll be really interesting to see who's budgeted accordingly to sustain this, this longer lease up period at the end of the day. So what is your strategy for navigating this market? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. So it's a really great question. So a lot of our education over the past few years with clients is, you know, we were very honest about valuations that went out and where things were trading over the past few years. And I think a lot of owners chased pie in the sky deals. And I don't, I don't blame them. It, we had some crazy times. There were some crazy transactions happened, but there were a lot of times when, when groups, I think chased the, the silver carrot and, and really went for that crazy price tag, they didn't get it. And in the interim of chasing that deal, debt shifted, the market shifted, pricing shifted altogether. And we've had a lot of groups come back to us this year and say, you know, you were one of the only shops that really gave us an honest opinion of where the site was. It was a number we wanted to hear at the time because we wanted to chase the pie in the sky number, you know, but that's where a lot of offers really came in. What's my site really worth today? So we are seeing a lot of owners are saying, look, I am actually interested in selling. What's it really going to take to get it done? And thankfully, although you're not at peak pricing, you would have been in April of 21, your site's still worth a lot more now than it was in 2019 or 2018 when you bought it. So there's still this tremendous value creation. And I don't want people to lose sight of that. You know, we talked about not being all doom and gloom and like people are still super active. We have number of clients on the buy side that have done over 50 transactions each this year. So there are large institutional groups that are spending serious money right now. And so a lot of our education space is like, look, if you do want to sell, we need to be realistic about what the pricing is, but also like what's your three to five year horizon look like? Because although we've paused the rate environment, how long are we going to hold this level? You know, how quickly are rates going to come down? That I can't tell you. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about the SOFA rate coming down around 200 bips in the next two to three years. Well, that's great, but we don't, we don't know. I don't have crystal ball. So there is a little bit of like, look, what's your opportunity cost of taking advantage of the market today? And, 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 you know, still making a profit on your, on your sale, but also to flip that to the buyer side, this is the first time that I think buyers have a really good fighting chance since before 2019, you know, you know, pr prior to uh, right now, like in the thick of COVID, we were probably seeing like six to a dozen deal offers on every deal. Now it's more like three to five offers. So if a buyer can get a deal to pencil in today's market, that deal is going to look great in 24 months if rates come down. So it just kind of depends where you are in your deal cycle. It, it's one of the, the few times I'm like, it's, it's a really good time to be both a buyer and a seller, depending on if you can get a deal to work. Okay. So as buyers or as investors who are interested in buying, assuming we are, yeah. I think our goal should be to understand sellers' problems and, and focus on solving those problems. So for the sellers who are selling today, 
Correct. Why are they selling on average or what are some common causes that you're seeing? Yep. I think, again, a lot of sellers uh, are, are realizing that the market has shifted downward and they're still looking to take advantage of, you know, our relative up market from where they were in 2019 or 2018. Um, something that we've seen Taylor, that would be, I think, great for a lot of your buyers out there that we're seeing become available for the first time in four or five years is seller financing. We're having a lot of sellers come back to us and say, Hey, you know what? We would entertain seller financing. Uh, that helps them get their price and defer their taxes. That also helps buyers, you know, get better terms surrounding their deal. They might be able to get, you know, a five-year balloon with 5% interest only, as opposed to tying up a bank loan at 8% principal and interest. So there are a lot of ways that strategies like seller financing can help both buyers and sellers. Um, but I think for your buyers out there, it's really a win-win scenario. Okay. So on the construction cost side of things, we talked about interest rates and those costs being relevant, but construction costs are very important, especially for new construction or value-add deals where you're adding square footage to a self-storage property. Have you seen those construction costs shift at all from their 2021, 2022 COVID highs? Are they still high? Are they come back down? What's your impression? Yep. Construction, unfortunately, is still pretty costly to do. Um, and it's just kind of our new norm for the time being, I think. Um, again, we've had a lot of bigger groups just pay cash for construction and their mentalities. They'll just refinance down the road. Um, we've also had a lot of groups shift to doing the portable unit additions of their properties. It's just a much more affordable method to do that. I mean, you instead of paying you know, 50 to $60 a foot for a single story product, you're more in that 30 to $40 range for the portable units, which especially if you're doing a small addition, you know, you're, you're eliminating a lot of that fixed kind of crew cost to bring out an entire construction team. So I think we've seen a lot of people take that direction, which I think is a very great way to do small additions at any property. And the nice thing is large buyers still place the same value on that, especially if it's just a small expansion. So you save cost, time, and energy, and it also does not diminish the value of your expansion any capacity from the revenue that you generate from it. Um, so that's one really, I think, way we've seen people mitigate and balance this. Um, but I think, too, again, it's just tough to get construction debt in this day and age. So if you can and you can afford it, you know, again, everything's going to look better when rates pull in. But most of our clients have been doing cash for expansions. Okay. So expansions and value add, I think you could break the cost down into three things. Once you factor out the land part, you are already have the property, but three things being materials, labor, and then permitting plans and all those things, documentation being number three. What are you seeing as the main drivers there? Is it materials, labor, what are you, what are you, what's your impression? Yeah. I mean, just like pricing for steel and product is still just high. I mean, and again, maybe this is our new norm. I mean, we saw such a large uptick in 20 and 21. Is that pricing here to stay? We'll find out. Um, but I think it's just been one of the largest factors that has kind of impacted our space. And, you know, you, you talk to a lot of the steel providers, like demand is still there. Like they are still fulfilling orders. They are still getting new requests for construction. And, Again, although we've seen a slowdown, like we're still at just this record level of construction going on throughout the country. And I think the difference between now and 09 and 10 is that a lot of groups planned 
for this slowdown. They knew that there had to be another side to this COVID bubble or bump, whatever you want to call it. And so we had a number of groups we know that went out and raised funds specifically for this downside or pocketed capital specifically for this downside. And so I think groups prepared for this. They built banking relationships with this. They did draws for this. So they're paying cash for this. And they knew that they were going to do this two years ago. And so I think we're going to continue to see people build through this next cycle. And again, the nice thing about this is that it's created a very soft landing for our industry. You know, again, although transaction volume is down year over year and maybe we're down on construction, like relative to where we were pre-COVID, we're still having a great year. So, uh, you know, all factors aside for you know, people saying, well, things are down. I still think it's going to bode very well for everyone over the next three to five years. Okay. So what are your thoughts on, quote, sitting on the sidelines? I think a lot of people, when they hear, if you will, negative things or negative conversations, yeah. bad news, they say, well, I'm just going to disengage from the market, sit on the sidelines for a couple of years and kind of stop paying attention. What's your impression of that sidelines mentality? Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I've never been a fan of it. I'm a big believer in opportunity cost. And I'll, I'll give your listeners a perfect example. We had a client that bought a deal back in 2018 for 1.2 million. They were offered 4 million at the peak of the market in, in mid in May or June of 21. Turned it down, you know, wanted more, didn't get it. There's an offer back on the table now for 3.4. And they're like, well, it's not 4 million, you know? And I'm like, look, no, no one actually transacted at 4 million. So you need to, first of all, let's take that number out of our head. You know, two, you're still making over a million dollars. So you're in a very healthy multiple on your initial buy. And the time that it would take for you to recoup this extra 600 grand in value in your site is probably three to four years away. You've squeezed most of the value out of your property as it currently stands versus you taking this sale and reinvesting that capital into two new deals. You're gonna make a lot more over that time you're just waiting for this value to increase your current property. So people can sit on the sidelines all they want, but, but money is made when it is changing hands through deals. And I think if people are, are engaging in deals, and especially now when there's some uncertainty in the market, I think is when people are gonna get really good deals done. Again, if you can if you can borrow seven or 8% debt and make a deal pencil in today's market, it's gonna look damn good in two years. That's true. If we're banking on or, or assuming that rates will fall, which is a kind of a crystal ball thing and we can't Correct. necessarily predict the yep. future. So one of the things I like about the self-storage market is how historically mom and pop owned it has been. And a lot of those mom and pops are getting older, approaching what might be a retirement age and wanting to step back from their investments. Are you seeing those mom and pops look to sell today or since they've been holding for so long, are they just kind of waiting it out and waiting for things to kind of turn around and start turning positive? What's your impression of the mom and pop side of the business? So, you know, over the hundreds of transactions we've done and, and being in the space as long as we have, we have found that mom and pops will sell when they're ready to sell, no matter what is happening in the market. And what I mean by that is, you know, up per example, I, there was a um, very nice farmer that I had worked with. He and his wife owned a storage facility. And he said, my wife retires from teaching in two years. We will be ready to sell in May of 22. And like, that was his like, that was his line in the sand and they don't really care. They had no debt. They had owned the site for 30 years. They just like, that was their timeline. 
And I have found time and time again that the single owner operators usually just have a, a timeline in their head. And whenever that meets it, that's when they're going to sell. Now, of course, you know, hey, a good offer changes anything. And maybe, you know, in a, in a time of uncertainty like this, if other investments weren't going well or you know, market change or whatever, maybe they're a little more apt to, to accept an offer. But I found most, most sellers are pretty honest with you about when they're ready to sell. And most of them follow that path pretty, pretty strictly. So, you know, as your listeners are talking to sellers, you know, heed what they're saying. You know, if they say I'll be ready in two years, well, just keep in touch with them. They're probably going to be ready to sell in two years. Most of them have a firm timeline and obviously, you know, life can happen and things can change, but I think most of them have a pretty good, pretty good track in their mind. And if they didn't, if they didn't feel motivated to take advantage of the market at 21 or 22, I don't think they're going to feel motivated to take advantage of it now. Fair enough. So those older mom and pops <clears throat> that have been holding onto their properties for say a couple of decades have yeah. a lot of depreciation recapture built up and probably a lot of capital gains and both of which they're going to have to pay tax on. Correct. How do you see them reinvesting their gains or what actions do you see them taking after they sell? Like what's their, you know, reallocation of capital plan typically these days? So most sellers, uh, to be honest, they don't care. They just kind of sell and, and bite the bullet and just move on. I think a lot of your older mom and pop sellers, that's what you're going to find. They're just happy to make what they made and they just you know, pay the piper, move on. Um, those who are concerned about it, maybe we'll explore seller financing, uh, 1031 of some capacity, DST, um, or maybe they will co-invest in some capacity in the new venture with you know the buyer of some sort. Um, you know, and then obviously there's, you know, upread strategies and things like that if it's a larger acquisition group. But I think for the most part, most sellers are, are pretty willing to just say thank you and just go about their business. Um, but, you know, again, I think the conversation specifically in this market to be had is seller financing. It's a win-win for them and the buyer. Um, if structured right after talking to your CPA and your attorneys, you know, there's, there's some things you definitely want to pin down. But there are excellent strategies for both parties. And I really think it can be a win-win, especially if the seller doesn't have any debt. I mean, it's kind of one of the best scenarios they had into retirement, getting a you know, guaranteed fixed source of income from a business they used to run for 20 or 30 years. Um, I think it's a pretty effective strategy for both parties involved. Cool. Okay, great. So before we go to the three questions I ask every guest in the show, yep. what is your favorite source of market knowledge in self-storage today? Where do you go to keep a pulse on things? Yep, great question. So uh, insideselfstorage.com is tremendous. They have some pretty broad you know, industry, you know, transactional happenings, things like that. Um, Self-Storage Association, they've got great info as well. Um, and then for you know, site-specific stuff, things like that, I always think that StoreTrack has done a tremendous job on the, the granular level with site data and things like that. Um, yeah, I think those are three pretty good resources, um, for kind of what's happening on an industry level and then a site specific level as well. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Did you know that you can use your IRA to invest in real estate? Many real estate investors, myself included, use our self-directed retirement accounts to invest our retirement in real estate. You just need a custodian that allows you to self-direct your investments. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Dollar. Rocket Dollar is a technology-enabled 
self-directed IRA, and solo 401k provider that puts your retirement funds in your control. Our listeners can open a Rocket Dollar self-directed IRA for as little as $15 per month, plus a one-time setup fee. Just go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash Rocket or click the link in the show notes. They have a fantastic knowledge base and a lot of guides to help you through the process and teach you all about how self-directed retirement account investing works. Once again, just go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash Rocket or click the link in the show notes. All right, John, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Number one book recommendation, I would have to say is Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Probably one of my favorite books I've ever read. Nice. Very popular book, especially with folks that want to start their own business. Question number two, who or what inspires you? Uh, my father, I would have to say, was my biggest inspiration through life. He unfortunately passed last year at age of 87. If I make it to 87, I'll be thrilled. Um, but we worked side by side for two decades. My best friend, all I could have ever asked for. Wow. Wow. Well, speaking of being in your 80s, question number three, think about John at 80 years old. What does he have to say of John uh, today? I think uh, John at 80 years old would tell John of today to enjoy life, take time when you need to, enjoy the family and enjoy the ride because nothing's guaranteed tomorrow. I love it. John, thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to learn more about you, where can they track you down? They can visit our website, lindsayselfstoragegroup.com. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can always give me a call directly. 919-381-7799 or email me john at lindsayselfstoragegroup.com. I'd love to help you in any way we can. Great. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. John, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. I hope you all have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.